Hey there, listeners. Welcome to Horror Movie Club, the show where two dudes who are not quite nerds but not quite noobs choose a horror movie each week to rate and review. I'm Brian. I'm on the phone with Ashvin. And today we are discussing Creep Show from 1982. Directed by George Romero, written by Stephen King, starring Hal Holbrook, Adrian Barbeau, Ed Harris, Ted Danson, Stephen King, Tom Atkins, and E.G. Marshall. In this anthology film, five chilling tales are told to us via the pages of a horror comic book. If you're new to the show, we're going to talk about this movie spoiler-free for the first 15 or 20 minutes as we discuss discuss some background info on the movie, but then after we take our little break and play some transition music, we are going to walk through the plot in full spoiler mode and review the film. So when you hear the transition music, if you haven't seen the movie yet, you better go watch it. Uh, I think it's streaming. It was streaming on Shudder, right? It was. Yep. Yeah. Uh, a horror comedy again. Two horror comedies in a row. I think it's a horror comedy, right? I saw that tag on there. I, I'm not sure if uh, I knew that watching it or like that part jumped out to me, but uh, it, it's got like a lighter feel to it. Sure, especially Jordy Farrell. Yeah, especially Jordy Farrell, right? Yeah. <laughs> And an anthology film, which we haven't done in a while. I want to say the last time we covered an anthology was, honestly, maybe like a year and a half ago when we oh, did Mortuary shit. Collection with Whitney. Damn, yeah. I can't believe it's been that long. Wow. That's sad. I know. It really is. Yeah, usually we hit like at least two or three of those a year, I feel like. Yeah, I mean, I love an anthology movie. Right, yeah. Uh, you feel like uh, we're getting a lot of horror anthologies still these days? Like, I know VHS is kind of like in the mix. Um but yeah, I, I, I don't know. Do you feel like that's still like a strong approach in horror? Yeah, I mean, I think they keep coming out intermittently enough that it, the that subgenre will always be alive and have a fandom, I think. I mean, VHS, we had one this year and one last year. Yeah, yeah. I feel like VHS is keeping that vibe going. But I don't know. Like, have you ever seen one of these in like a theater, a horror anthology? I don't think it lends itself well to a theater in these modern times okay. it just seems like such a good choice for VOD I'm not sure how many people would go to a theater for an anthology horror movie yeah okay so if you're someone putting together an anthology horror you're not aiming for like commercial theater success you're looking I gotta believe you're not aiming for theatrical release yeah okay yeah that's uh, so interesting I, I don't get it like why 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 don't you think that would be good in, in the theater that's a really good question. I feel like it's such a more casual viewing experience. Mm-hmm. Do you think so? I don't know how to describe it, but yeah, it's oh, you know, actually, uh, we did do a. Wouldn't you consider scary stories to tell in the dark an anthology? No, I wouldn't. What? Why? That's uh, because it's all. I mean, the books are anthologies, oh. but the movie was all one storyline, though. Yeah, shit ran like, straight through. <laughs> terribly done. <laughs> yeah, they like tied them all together with what? Yeah, the same character. Yeah, all right. I think your memory failed you because you, the movie <laughs> yeah. was so forgettable. <laughs> exactly. Oh yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Um, but uh, okay, so so that one was in theaters, but not a true anthology. Uh, it's I, also not a format that's very consumable. I mean, people aren't used to it. They might get into yeah. the theater and be like, "What the hell's going on?" Yeah, right. What, what's and, up with these short stories? Even to make a trailer for it, it's kind of hard to fit into the conventional models. Yeah. Yeah, Um, good point. Wes Anderson just had an anthology released last year. What was was it called? Was that in theaters? Um, Oh, shit. What was the name of it? The title of the movie was the title of the newspaper. The French something. French Connection. The French Dispatch. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was an anthology. Okay. I think it was released on the... I think it was in theaters. Was it really? I could have sworn I watched it for the first time at home. Uh, same, but I feel like that was after the theatrical run. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, I just assumed a director like Wes Anderson when he puts something out, probably hitting theaters. But shit, man, I I never look stuff up on the episode, even though I probably should because people would think we're smarter. <laughs> but I'm gonna look this up. I really the- want to know if this was released in the theaters. I'm maybe you can edit out me, chicken chicken pecking oh no I, I like to record it when you're wrong <clears throat> I mean if I'm wrong you can record that but <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, so we've done our Googling. I don't know what Ashvin edited out or kept in from that, but we learned it had a limited release in theaters and then a wider release was on. Yeah, but I hear you like... media. Yeah, I, I think you're right, though. Like a film goer, you're going to a movie, you want like a whole like two hours like dedicated to a story. You don't want to sit through uh, little bits and pieces, right? Yeah, right. I don't think the average movie goer is prepared for that kind of experience. Sure, that makes sense. Um, but yeah, George Romero, uh, his production company, The Latent Image, started out doing a few short films for the Mr. Rogers show, some beer commercials, stuff like that. Night of the Living Dead was his big break. Then it spawned the whole franchise of the dead films. I think there are six of them. He also did notable movies like Season of the Witch, The Crazies, Martin, Monkey Shines, and the recently released film The Amusement Park, which was thought to be a lost film, I believe, from 1975, but Shudder put it out last year, I want to say. Ah, have you seen that? Yes, it is an educational film, from what I understand, about elder abuse. Oh, wow. So it's not even like a horror movie? It functions as one in a weird way. It's almost mm. like a psychological horror. It's very depressing. Like a an older gentleman goes to an amusement park and just becomes like really confused and keeps getting like the shaft on stuff and he just has a really horrible time there <laughs> and yeah. it's all kind of a view at what navigating life is like as you get older and it's weirdly depressing oh wow yeah uh, that's crazy it's an interesting watch yeah it's on shutter I'll, uh, yeah i might check that out yeah it is um yeah and romero passed away in 2017 from lung cancer this was an original screenplay by Stephen King, and Stephen King's son, Joe Hill, is in the wraparound story as a child. Yeah, that's crazy. He's kind of, uh, a, he's become a big, bigger deal, right, as he's gotten older? I think he's still yeah. active. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joe Hill, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, I meant to look him up because I'm, I've been aware that he's, he's a presence, but I'm not super familiar with all his work, but... Yeah, he's he's writing he's writing fiction pretty prolifically like his dad. He's been involved in multiple TV shows and movies as well. So, yep. I even think maybe a movie this year. I want to say, and I, I'm just speaking off the cuff, so forgive me if I'm wrong. But I think Mr. Harrigan's phone from this year might be based on one of his oh. short stories. I thought for some reason that was based on one of Stephen King's short stories, but maybe you're it, right. Maybe. It might be. Maybe I'm getting confused. Okay, okay. Yeah. Maybe. But some movie, I feel like there's been a couple movies lately that have been based on Joe Hill's stuff. Yeah, so he's like fo- following in his father's footsteps, writing horror. Indoor TV shows. Yes, yep. it seems like it to me. But okay. I'm not very aware. I haven't haven't really tracked his career. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it looks like it, that movie, you remember in The Tall Grass, you, you watched that one? Mm, yeah, was that Joe Hill? Uh, it was co-written by him and his father. So uh, okay, yeah, I, you might be, you might be heard about the the phone one too. Gotcha. Uh, quite a cast here: Leslie Nielsen, Hal Holbrook, Ted Danson, Adrian Barbeau, Ed Harris. I couldn't believe it, man. It's, a lot of recognizable faces. Yeah, a lot of recognizable faces. Like the who's who's of uh, a lot of them. Like I don't know how big they were then, but I mean, obviously now, like those are pretty well known names. Yeah, they are. And I think a lot of them went to Carnegie Mellon Film School in Pittsburgh together. Um, At least I'm pretty sure that George Romero did, Tom Savini did, John Harrison, who did the music, did, and I think maybe Ted Danson did as well. Hmm. Okay, cool. And that's, like, I think where they shot as well. Yeah, they shot a lot of it around Pittsburgh. I think all of it around Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. so yeah, it's nice to know there's a little close-knit group there that all knew each other from school making movies together. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes score of 65% from critics and 68% from users. Pretty aligned there. It had a budget of $8 million and a box office of $21 million, so assume it was profitable. Mm-hmm. It finished number one at the box office on its opening weekend. That's awesome. It came out yeah. the same year as uh, Halloween Part 3, I think. Oh, interesting. And uh, yeah, it's, it sounds like they waited a few weeks to let the buzz die down on that one and then release this one. So, gotcha. Uh, the Thing came out that year too, right? Oh, wow. Like 19, Yeah, yeah. That was a big year for horror. Yeah. Uh, as far as franchises go, this one kind of had a big footprint in, in a few different ways. It got spun off 
to a degree, under a different title, into a TV series called Tales from the Dark Side with Romero as executive producer, and that premiered in 1983 and ran for four seasons. It was going to get a reboot in 2016, but that never happened, and Joe Hill uh, ended up converting those never-aired scripts into a comic book because he was heavily involved with the show Oh, cool! Um, that was supposed to happen in 2016. Yeah. You ever get into, like, uh, horror comic books? No, have you? I've always been curious. Uh, no, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd be down to check it out. Uh, like, Tales from the Crypt and stuff, though, those were originally, like, paperback, or, like, yeah, paper comic books, right? Yeah, they were EC mm-hmm. comics, I believe, yeah. Right, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's an interesting format for horror. I'd be interested in exploring that. Same, same. I would, too. Um, then there was a direct sequel to this movie, Creepshow 2, in 1987. Romero and King were still involved. I don't believe this one was directed by Romero, but he did some writing on it, and they were based off some King stories. Creepshow 3 from 2006, neither of them was involved. I've heard that one's pretty bad. Mm. Um, and recently... Creepshow spawned a TV series titled Creepshow, uh, helmed by Greg Nicotero, who was once a protege of Tom Savini's, and that series is on Shudder. I think it's about to begin its fourth season. Have you seen any of it? I watched a few episodes right out the gate, and then I kind of fell off. I enjoyed what I saw. I just, as you know, as I say almost every episode, I have trouble keeping up with horror TV. Yeah. Have you watched it? Uh, no, I haven't. I haven't. That That's really interesting, though, uh, when you think about, like, horror tv like has become like there's so many shows now that fall into that category and uh when you think about the anthology format if you're someone who's making one of these films do you ever consider like instead of putting these together into like a two-hour film why not just make a like a eight episode tv show where each one's like a different episode like a tales of the crypt type format um i feel like that lends itself more uh or, or, or that's better situated for like how people are digesting these kind of things today this goes back to your discussion earlier on whether you think anthologies are kind of still around and kicking. That could hurt them. The fact that TV is so yeah prevalent and easy to do, not easy to do, but stream like a, there's just a lot yeah. of different avenues to put something out there. So yeah, yeah. What's the point in collecting these short stories into a a, a movie, right? Well, some yeah. of them are like five minutes. You know, five to ten minutes. Oh, sure. So, Like the wraparound I'll, story on this one? Yeah, although Creepshow, I think they would do like two stories an episode, so you could really easily... I, I don't know. I like that there can be varying lengths of stories in the yeah. anthology. Sure, yeah, versus making them all like 30 minutes or 40 minutes, something, yeah. Uh, yeah, and sometimes they can kind of loosely be tied together by a theme or a setting. Mm-hmm, sure. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Some advantages. It's an interesting format to think about. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, we mentioned Tom Savini. He he has a small role as a garbage man in the wraparound story, but he also did special effects makeup for this movie. As we said, these were this was like an homage to EC horror comics of the fifties, um, and it was later adapted to an actual comic book. So that's awesome. Creepshow kind of had its footprint in all sorts of mediums. Yeah. TV. I- comic books yeah uh and uh a haunted house at universal studios which i i got to go to like a few years ago uh, oh really yeah it's it's um if you go to like the fright nights or whatever at universal studios out in uh la or whatever uh there's like a, whole, a house that's like dedicated to creep show and it's like yeah each of the skits each of the like yeah you go through different rooms that are based off of each of the shorts in this oh it's wow cool. from the original movie yeah yeah. That's oh, a, that's awesome. It's a cool way, of, uh, cool way of translating it. Yeah. Oh, God. I want to go to that sometime. Yeah. It'd be a lot of fun. We should check that out. Um, we should do a little chip there. Yeah, we should, right? Uh, hey, th- so uh, I I don't know if I realized that Stephen King acted in Sony movies. Um, like, seeing him here was kind of a shock to me. And then when I looked at it, he's, like, been an actor in, like, so many movies of his. Do, have you, do you see him a lot, or do, do you recall him from a lot of movies? I don't recall him appearing in many movies, but is his acting are his acting credits pretty vast? Yeah, yeah. Apparently, he's acted in a ton of movies that he's either written um, or like he's produced or something. But like he like play a role here and there. So interesting. Yeah, surprised. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I mentioned him as a star, but he does star in one of the short stories. 
Right. The Lonesome Death of Jordy Verrill. And this was the first time he was uh, doing screenwriting for a film, I think. But then Was he, it? Okay. Yeah. But then, but then, yeah, after this, he did like a bunch of films. Yeah. I know. I feel like in the past he would write like his adap- adapted screenplays and then people would choose somebody else to write it over him. Oh. Um, like I think that may have happened with The Shining and I want to say maybe Carrie, but. Uh, I see. Again, speaking off the cuff, so don't kill me if I'm wrong, people. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I guess I was just assuming he's like this author who's uh, had so many books that have been turned into movies, but then, yeah, when you look at his filmography, he's actually been pretty involved with Hollywood since like the 80s. Yeah, right. Yeah, and this one, it was an original screenplay, so it wasn't just based off his stories. He just came up with them hmm. for this movie. Got it. Yeah. Uh, anything else background wise or should I hit the Ohio connection? Uh, no, I think you got everything I had. So go for it. Okay. Our friend Alex connects every movie we watch to our home state of Ohio for us. He owns the jukebox bar and restaurant in Cleveland, Ohio. Pop in for some great drinks and great food. And Alex says, Creepshow is a horror comedy anthology film directed by George A. Romero and written by Stephen King, making this his screenwriting debut. Thank you, Alex. I wanted to say that, but I couldn't remember if I was right. The film's ensemble cast includes Hal Holbrook, Adrian Barbeau, Fritz Weaver, Leslie Nielsen, and Carrie Nye. There are five short stories depicted, one being The Crate, about a mysterious crate discovered on a college campus. This segment features actor Hal Holbrook as a mild-mannered professor. Holbrook was a decorated actor of both stage and screen, earning multiple Emmy Awards, one Tony Award, and one Academy Award nomination for his supporting role in Into the Wild. Hal Holbrook was born in Cleveland, Ohio. Yeah, nice. That's awesome. Yeah. Great one. Yeah. He sounds like a, yeah, a familiar person. Have you seen his other movies? Um. Well, yeah, he was in Into the Wild. You saw that one? Uh, I did see that, yeah. Okay. He was in The Fog. Hmm. All the President's Men, I never saw that. And Lincoln from 2012, those are some of his biggest ones. But yeah, nah, I don't think I've seen those. Yeah. Uh, okay, man, well, are you ready to uh, walk through the plot and start spoiling some things? Let's do it. Okay, let's do it. But do you mind holding on one second? My kids found a really strange rock for their rock collection that they really want me to go and see. Oh, sure, go for it. Yeah. They've got really vivid imaginations, and they said they saw it fall from the sky, and it glows or whatever, so I'm just going to go humor them, take a little look, and I'll be right back. Sounds good. All right. All right, cool. Hey, buddy, I'm back. Hey, so how, how, what's up with the rock? Well, I've got great news. On the way back down from checking out that rock, I looked in the mirror, and uh, after 10 years of living as a bald man, I'm happy to report that my hair has magically returned. That's awesome. <laughs> what yeah. color is it? Yeah, well, okay. Yeah, that's the bad news. It, it's coming in pretty green. <laughs> I always knew you could rock a green uh, mohawk or something. <laughs> yeah. Good look on you. <laughs> yeah, beggars can't be choosers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, the film begins with Tom Atkins playing an abusive father who hits his son, played by a young Joe Hill, for reading a horror comic. The father throws the comic in the trash, but the creep, an undead ghoul from the horror comic, appears at the boy's window beckoning him to come as he opens the lid to the trash can and we flip through the pages of the comic to our first story, Father's Day. And they do some cool transitions here where you go from the illustrated cartoon image of the story and it converts into an actual photograph. And yeah. it's kind of a cool effect. I like that. Yeah, that's really cool. And that must have been pretty advanced for 1982 too, as well. It, it seems like it, doesn't it? Yeah. All right. Well, in the story Father's Day, the wealthy Grantham family sits at their estate awaiting the arrival of their Aunt Bedelia for an annual dinner. Each year, Aunt Bedelia comes to the estate to visit the grave of her father, Nathan, who it is rumored she killed. At some point, we get a flashback of Nathan bossing Bedelia around and demanding a Father's Day cake, which she frantically bakes, but Bedelia can't take his abuse anymore and bludgeons him to death. We also learn that Nathan had Bedelia's fiancé killed and then made it look like a hunting accident, so this dude definitely got what was coming to him. 
And when Aunt Bedelia arrives, she takes a bottle of Jack Daniels to the grave of her father, which is on the estate grounds. But to her shock, when she spills the whiskey on the grave, Nathan's corpse emerges from the ground and strangles her, saying, Where's my cake, Bedelia? Ed Harris, who plays the boyfriend of one of the siblings in the family, ventures outside and notices the empty bottle of liquor near the grave. He trips and falls and then notices that the grave marker above him is about to fall on his head. He sees Nathan's reanimated corpse shortly before the headstone finally falls and crushes his skull. Did you feel like Ed Harris lie there, laid there for a really long time Dude, for so a guy long. who sees? <laughs> yeah, just like watching it, like move, like it. it yeah, I, I couldn't understand why he wasn't moving at all. That like seemed like I don't know, just dragged on a little bit. I think Nathan's zombie was telekinetically moving that rock. So is it possible he was telekinetically pinning him to the ground? <laughs> Maybe that could be like the only viable explanation potentially. It just kind of felt like he was laying there in shock, like, "Oh yeah. no, this is about to happen." Yeah, but he just and I can do really laid there. <laughs> it was like yeah. a full minute and a half. Yeah, like that was like the slowest moving thing. <laughs> he had so much time, but I, I, yeah, that could be it. Maybe that that person was able to. I. I didn't realize uh, he was telekinetically moving it. I thought he was like maybe pushing it from the other side, but uh, you think so because we see him on the other side of it, right? Right. He's pretty far away. Ah, okay. And that doesn't typically just happen. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Although it's possible it's on shaky ground because he just emerged from the sure. grave. So. Yeah, it's a little yeah. unstable, edging itself closer. Uh, Sylvia, the matriarch of the family, heads into the kitchen to look for their maid, only to find muddy footsteps, and she sees the reanimated corpse of her father, who twists her head around backwards, snapping her neck. I think he's her father. I was confused about all the family connections Mm. here. Yeah, me too. But when his two grandchildren eventually come into the kitchen looking for him, he pops out, presenting them with his Father's Day cake. Finally, after all these years, he's got his Father's Day cake, and it is Sylvia's severed head on a platter. What did you think of this one? I thought it was pretty dumb, man. Like, uh, yeah, Ed Harris's death was, uh, like, yeah, so, so lame. The whole story, like, felt very predictable. Is Father's Day cake even a real thing? Like, I've, I, I never heard of a, you know, you hear about a birthday cake. I don't ever know if you hear about a Father's Day cake. And, uh, yeah, it just, it, it seemed really kitschy and, and dumb, lack suspense or anything interesting and kind of predictable. Uh, what did you think? I love it. <laughs> what? <laughs> what did you love about how? I just really love. Well, first of all, you're right. Nobody, nobody has a Father's Day cake. Okay, that's perhaps funny. that's why he's such a jerk. <laughs> uh, I just really like the vibe and aesthetic of it. Yeah, it's pretty campy, but it's also like semi gothic in this like old mansion with a graveyard on its grounds. Uh, but it's also like modern and schlocky and comedic at the same time. I think the zombie dad looks amazing. You think so? Really? Uh, I think he does. He doesn't sound amazing. They do that kind of like silly vocal effect, but I thought yeah. he looked really good. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. I, I didn't think the effects, I was really surprised to see Tom Savini's name on this. Cause, uh, yeah, it, it didn't like jump out to me at all here. I also like the little touches they put into the characters, like Bedelia's backstory and her, like talking to her dad as he like at his grave, like drunk and sad. Yeah. It, it was like weirdly touching and felt pretty real for this like campy schlocky story in the middle of a comedic anthology. You didn't feel like um, she was like way overacting, like the, being this kind of like, like she was like obviously like drunk at the time uh, while she's like kind of just like rambling on to the grave. Uh, it didn't feel like, like, yeah, I didn't feel like the acting was like very good. I didn't find it super overacty, but okay. this is kind of a campy movie, so maybe my expectations are downgraded a notch. Sure. And then the the pacing of just like one after another, like one goes out to find, uh, see what happens and gets abducted, and then another one goes out and gets abducted. I mean, like that, that didn't just kind of feel like it was just very repetitive and predictable. Um. Well, only two of the, that only happens twice, you know? I mean, one of them is already out there it's daytime it's her father that does it the other one kind of happens into what's it doesn't seem that repetitive to me um doesn't the housekeeper also get taken she gets got but we just find her dead body as sylvia's looking for her oh okay okay Um, we don't necessarily know how she ate it yeah so both the brother and the sister survive then at the end 
Well, it ends with them standing there, freeze frame, looking at the cake, which is their mother's severed head. So yeah. we presume they die. Okay. But we don't get see them get killed. And yeah. it's a really short story, so I, I yeah. find it to be economical and efficient and just fun. Yeah, I feel like it was kind of long and dumb, but I agree. <laughs> long, I don't think it's long, like <laughs> well, factually long. Well, I feel like for the lack of story... It, uh, like, it didn't need to be, like, as long. Like, I mean, what was this, like, 10 minutes, 10, 15 minutes? I, you know, I wish I had time-stamped it all and, and written down how long they were. I would guess, yeah, this is maybe a 15-minute story. Did you notice it contradicts itself? Because uh, twice she says, uh, Badila, you can set a clock to her. And then she says, sometimes, then they're, like, waiting for her. And they're like, oh, well, sometimes she loses track of time. Um I don't, I don't know, like, this is, like, kind of a, a, a dumb story or something, like, not supposed to dig too much into it. But do, do you think that was purposeful to, like, contradict the character of Bedelia like that? I think it was that you could set her watch by, set your watch by her being there at, like, 1 p.m. that specific day of the year every year. Yeah. But in general, maybe she wasn't necessarily the most <laughs> punctual or aware person. Sure, but on Father's Day at 1 p.m., you know where she'll be. Yeah, that's specific. Exactly. Yeah. Because of this traumatic thing, you know? She killed her dad. Of course, she was going to be there. At, she felt like to make up for it, she had to do this thing. Yeah. And then what do you think was different this time compared to every other Father's Day that triggered the dad zombie to pop out? Zombie dad. Well, I, it could you could theorize that it's the alcohol that was spilled on the grid mm. fired him up. Yeah, yeah. So we're so yeah we're supposed to believe that other times she either didn't show up with alcohol or she managed to not spill it potentially. Correct. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, I just don't feel like we got enough uh, Bedelia to know her. I felt like she was kind of overreacted, and then uh, yeah, the kids and the rest of the family all like unlikable. Like no one was likable here, were they? No, they weren't very likable, nor do I think they were really supposed to be. But I also think you get a little bit of humanity underneath every once in a while. Like the brother reluctantly agrees to go with his sister to look for her husband. and Yeah, that no one They're likes. not necessarily likable. I mean, Aunt Bedelia, I think you could say was likable. Oh, really? Yeah, I mean, uh, she was wronged. I, I guess, yeah, yeah, she was wronged. All because of a cake, I guess. Or something, yeah. Well, I, and he, I mean, he killed her fiancé, too. Right, right. Although later it's insinuated that maybe that was actually Sylvia. At least I've read that on Wikipedia, but I didn't catch that. Oh, no shit. That's an interesting twist. Yeah, I mean, if you got a thing, uh, the, the, the whole gimmick here is a Father's Day cake, which it seems like neither of us have ever heard of a Father's Day cake. Uh, yeah, it's just hard, hard to buy into a story uh, about a, a made-up uh, thing for a holiday. <laughs> All right, well, we have four more stories to go <laughs> right. through, so we'll move on. <laughs> Sounds agree good. agree to disagree on that one. All right, a good day. The next one is The Lonesome Death of Jordy Verrill. A country bumpkin named Jordy Verrill, played by Stephen King, witnesses a meteorite land in his yard. When he goes to touch it, it burns his fingers, so he pours some water on it, which causes it to split open. All the while, Jordy is talking to himself and saying things like, Oh, Jordy, you done it now, you lunkhead. And you spell that kind of luck, B-A-D. We see him fantasize about taking the meteorite to the local college and getting $200 for it. He tells himself he'll do that in the morning. But as he passes a lonely night in his secluded and humble abode, we see that his yard is starting to become host to a neon green form of grass or plant life. His fingers continue to bother him where he touched the meteor, and he soon realizes that the strange plant is growing on his fingers as well as in his mouth that he's been using to suck on his aching fingers. He ponders what to do. He talks to himself. He sees a vision of his father, who we learn has been deceased for three years. He takes a bath uh, to relieve the itching, which presumably helps the plant grow until he's so overwhelmed by the plant that it's hard to tell he's human at all. We hear his last words as he puts a shotgun to his head and he says, please, God, let my luck be good just this once as he goes to blow his own head off. And he does. I thought that was so sad this time. Oh. <laughs> like saying that line, it's like pretending to be trying to kill yourself. Yeah. Like to say that line as you're killing yourself yeah. is like the most depressing thing. I actually, I, I used to think this story was kind of silly and it was one of my least favorite ones, but I really loved it this time and felt like it was so lonely and wow. like sad yeah. in a way. Really? Oh, okay, okay. 
You thought it was dumb, huh? <laughs> Dude, yeah. <laughs> that is so dumb. Uh, I, I hear you saying it's, it's like, yeah, it's pretty depressing, like, this dude on his own going through this and, like, his good luck is being able to kill himself. Like, yeah, that's pretty grim and, and dark. But, yeah, from, like, a storyline, uh, it's it's like a, a one-sentence thing. Like, guy finds something and it grows all over him in the end. Uh so, yeah, I mean, the only thing I, I really enjoyed about this one were, like, his imaginations of, like, that conversation, uh, that, that uh, like, the editing around that, like, how he would imagine himself talking to a professor or a doctor. And it was always, like, that same character, too, right? Or the same actor? Yeah, I think it was probably the same actor that portrayed the doctor and the guy at the college. Yeah, yeah. I thought those kind of scenarios he would uh, fantasize about were kind of funny. But otherwise, yeah, I thought the story, like, lacked any real uh, momentum or, like, anything interesting. Uh, but you thought you see so you didn't find this one funny. You thought it was more sad. I did find it kind of funny, but I also thought it was yeah, kind of sad. He's just out there all alone in this house. His dad died three years ago. There we hear more dialogue from the TV that he's got on than we hear from him. Yeah, and it's just kind of sad. And he keeps like saying like, "Oh, Jordy, you did it!" Like he's talking shit about himself. Yeah. Uh, Something about it just struck me as kind of sad and lonely this time. Sure, yeah. It hits Did different. you think, though, that the green stuff looked pretty good, growing on all the inanimate objects and on him and stuff? Yeah, that was cool. And I, and I, I love the ending. Like It ends on like a forecast of like a bunch of rain's about to come in, and you see like it cuts on a scene of like all the green kind of like taking over uh, the, the neighborhood or the town or something. So that was kind of cool. Right. Ominous. One of the quotes from the TV, he's watching a religious show, and it says, God who has begun a good thing in you will complete it. Mm. Yeah. So, so that might have been an ominous warning about what was to come as well. Yeah. I was wondering, because I, I think we know King is like pretty environmentally conscious. Conscience? Conscious. Uh, is that right? Yeah, I think so. Do, do you think there's any commentary here about like climate change or like, uh, a, I don't know, like is that, is that too like too much to expect from this movie that like he's packing any kind of like a commentary that might be too much to expect from this story but it's possible Mm, okay yeah but yeah i I thought it was a little bit better than the first one but still like not like uh, terribly interesting okay poor jordy then yeah you like i was a fan i i really i i traditionally have been down on that one but i really liked it this time okay also we didn't even mention that this is one of the few episodes that we recorded once years ago and accidentally oh, yeah. deleted. It is one of two lost episodes, this and It Comes at Night. Yeah. And finally, we're re-recording this. I know. I wish uh, we had a copy of that because I'd, I'd want to, after we talk about this, understand, like see how our conversation might be different or if views might have changed. Yeah, I found my old notes and they're very different than my notes look nowadays. Oh, interesting. Okay, cool. Yeah. Uh, okay, the next story is something to tide you over. This one begins with Leslie Nielsen, who plays the wealthy Richard, appearing at the door of Harry, played by Ted Danson. Harry is involved with Richard's wife, Becky, and Richard is presumably here to put a stop to it. He plays Harry an audio recording of Becky's voice begging for help and convinces Harry to come with him to his vast beachside estate. He then convinces Harry to bury himself up to his neck in sand while holding him at gunpoint. Once he's done, he rigs up a TV in front of Harry, which shows the image of Becky in the same predicament, buried in the sand, except the tide is coming up and she is struggling to breathe as the water periodically submerges her face. Richard strands Harry there in the sand and returns to his home, where he casually sips a cocktail as he watches Becky and Harry drown on video monitors in his home. Right before Harry drowns, he looks in the camera and vows revenge on Richard. Later that night, Richard thinks he hears something outside and becomes increasingly paranoid that there is someone in the house. We see shadows and hear sloshing before it's finally revealed that Becky and Harry have returned from their watery grave as mostly decomposed bodies to take Richard with them into the deep. Richard shoots each of them, but it does nothing to slow them down. And the story ends with Richard himself buried in the sand as the tide starts coming in. I'm going to guess you actually like this one. I really like this one, man. Uh, I thought it was so great, like, that it just, like, the way it starts, 
it's like it's just like this guy's like confronting someone who's uh sleeping with uh his his ex-wife or wife or whatever and like the, this whole like setup's already like underway and uh yeah the, the dialogue between them was so good leslie nielsen i feel like is a great actor and ted danson gives, gives a great performance as well uh so it, it, yeah that kind of torture of like watching like water slowly come and like kind of take you over and, and trying to stay uh uh keep keep breathing through that it, it, it's very I, I yeah i'm pretty scared of that that was that, that works really well so yeah I, I liked it what what did you think i liked it too again the acting is especially standout and i think it this is the strongest acted of the bunch it's mm. really good acting from both leslie and ted danson there's some cool shots in here too like of ted danson underwater completely or it's just like well, yeah. that looks like it'd actually be scary to even shoot right uh, there's a really ominous synth score that was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there were just some nice touches. Like when we see the ghouls enter in the house at first, or we get hints that they're in there, we're seeing it shot through like the aquarium in his house. So, and he's in the shower. So it's kind of like the water of the shower, the water of the aquarium. They've emerged from the water. It just all kind of like fits together. Yeah. Uh, I also thought it looked really cool when especially when the lady ghoul gets shot in the forehead and blood just like pours down her face and right. she just keeps walking right yeah creepy. That, was, that was really creepy yeah w- one thing that i think robbed uh, the ghouls of creepiness though was like how much they were talking like they were like saying full sentences like on her and just like repeating it um i yeah, i always feel like that takes away from like the scariness of a character i agree i have that note as well that's a, a minor beef they also use it sounds like a the same vocal effect or very similar that they use for these ghouls for the father's day ghoul oh and even for jordy once he's covered completely covered in the stuff oh yeah he's saying like i hope my luck isn't bad this time yeah he's got like a very similar voice sure yep have you noticed with these last three as well the lighting the reliance on like the red and blue lighting so kind of like when when like something supernatural or a ghost is coming or something. Yeah, there's a lot of red and blue. We haven't discussed that. And there's a lot of comic book feel. Like mm. you get like page turn wipes to transition between scenes. Yeah. And you get stuff around the edges of the frame that would be like a comic book cell. Like right. A little yeah. art, art that's overlaid on the screen. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's good. Kind I of like cool. that. Do you like it? I, I like the animations and like how those kind of come and go. Uh, and, and yeah, the borders. The red and blue, do you think that's like also a callback to comic books? Of like the, the flashing hmm. red and blue lights? That's a good question. I'm not sure. I mean, that's just so common in so many movies. I think those colors just kind of okay. complement each other well. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like they're it, maybe it was being overused, and like like they're using it like every like kind of horrific sequence. They're like yeah. coming on heavy with those lights. I don't think it's overused, but it does seem like a trademark of the movie. Yeah, um, but I could see that beef. Yep. Yeah, but this this was a great one though. This is much better than the first two. Okay, cool. We're agreed on something. Yeah. Uh, the crate is the next story. A college janitor drops a quarter that rolls underneath a basement stairwell where he discovers a crate that looks like it came from the Arctic and is dated 1834. He calls Professor, S- Professor Stanley to come take a look at it. And Professor Stanley is at a faculty party. Also in attendance is the timid Professor Henry Northrup and his obnoxious wife, Billy, who is constantly ostracizing Henry. We'll come back to Henry and Billy later, but Professor Stanley comes to the campus building at the beckoning of the janitor, and together they open the crate to reveal an ape-like monster that consumes the janitor, leaving nothing but a pool full of blood and a ragged boot. Professor Stanley's very shaken up by this, and as he's fleeing the scene, he encounters a grad student to whom he recounts what just happened. The grad student comes with him to check it out, only to also be consumed by the monster himself. Professor Stanley escapes yet again. This time he makes it to his friend Henry's house and tells him the entire story of the night. Henry, who we've seen many times already, fantasize about killing his wife, Billy, seems to get an idea in his head as his friend describes this monster. He drugs Professor Stanley, He and once Stanley falls asleep, he goes to the campus building to check out the scene for himself. 
He finds the mess of blood, but he dutifully cleans it all up and calls his wife, Billy, and convinces her to come help him with something at the college. When Billy arrives, he convinces her to get a closer look at the crate, and the monster within consumes her. To hide the evidence, he nails down the crate and dumps it into the old quarry, and in the morning, his friend Professor Stanley and him agree that they will tell nobody what just happened. But the story ends with a shot of the creature breaking free from its crate at the bottom of its quarry. I'm going to guess that you liked this one, too. <laughs> I did, man. I thought this was like a really great story. So many great characters and like good motive and cool monster uh, and like well done, like suspenseful sequences. And uh, yeah, a good amount of like dark comedy in here. Uh, so, yeah, I, I enjoyed this one a lot, man. What, what did you think? I think the one thing I like about this whole thing is the little things that Stephen King does to bring characters to life, even mm-hmm. minor characters. Like the janitor says about his quarter, like probably would have let it go, but it was my last fourth quarter for the Coke machine. It's just like <laughs> that line yeah. doesn't need to be in there, but it kind of brings the characters to life a little bit sure. more. I feel like he does stuff like that throughout this movie. Yeah, adds a little twist in there. Yeah, I enjoyed Hal Holbrook's fantasies about killing his wife too. <laughs> yeah, like, me too. At the party, everyone kind of claps, and he hell of a shot. Bullseye. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> Good comedy. Uh, there. But I will say I might feel a little bit opposite of you because I think this might be my least favorite just because that's too good. I feel like it's pretty long. It, uh, yeah. I mean, this one, like, it's like multiple stories in a way, right? It's uh, it's almost like, yeah, on, on one hand, they're, they're finding a monster and, like, trying to do something to do with it. And then there's, like, this guy trying to get revenge on his wife somehow. So, yeah, it, it's this is probably the longest out of the bunch, maybe. Yeah, I, this one feels to be about 30 minutes or so. Yeah. Um, Would you think... Yeah, I, Go ahead. Uh, what did you think of like the monster? I think it looks pretty good, but not. I don't know. Like a giant monkey monster is not my preferred monster. Like so, I think it looks a little silly just inherently. I don't think it's poorly made or anything though. Yeah, I I thought it looks cooler than like the zombies that we've been seeing uh, in like the first and third one so far. But you prefer See, the zombies. Yeah. I prefer the zombies, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but, but my biggest complaint with this one is just it takes a long time without a whole lot of payoff. Like, yeah. It really takes its time to get where it's going even well after you know exactly where it's going. Really? Cause I, you could say that's building suspense, but yeah. like him cleaning up the blood is like a long scene. Sure, yeah, that is a long scene. Um, I don't know, though, out, of, out of like the other, out of the four that we've talked about so far, I feel like th- this one is the least clear on where it's going. Uh, like the f- first, second, third one, I feel like more predictable. This one, like, I don't know if like how quick you jump to the fact that he's going to use this monster to like get rid of his wife. Um, th- I feel like they play that out a bit. Yeah, right. I don't think it's predictable from the get go. But once you know he's going to use them, like you oh, see yeah. the idea get in his head. We kind of wait a long time for him, like to clean everything up. And sure, like bring get her out there and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I I get a little bored during this. Sure, one. sure. Yeah, and then the monster doesn't jump out right away, so there's like a bit of a wait. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the next story is they're creeping up on you. In this story, we meet Upton Pratt, an extremely wealthy germaphobe who lives in an apartment that basically serves as a hermetically sealed clean room. We learn through a phone call of someone he works for that Pratt's hostile takeover of another company has driven a competitor to suicide. Pratt relishes in this news as we've learned through some dialogue that he is an all-around jerk. A line gets through to, or a call gets through to Pratt's private phone number, and it turns out to be the wife of the man that he drove to suicide. She's telling him what an awful person he is as he just basically mocks her. Pratt starts to notice cockroaches in his apartment. He tries to call on some of his subordinates to help get an exterminator service, but doesn't have any luck with that. He finds a cockroach in his smoothie or his soup or whatever he's eating, more in his box of cereal, and more and more until eventually his apartment is overrun by cockroaches and they begin to swarm him individually. And as the chaos crescendos, we cut to a point in the near future where Upton's apartment is perfectly calm without any roaches in sight, and we see him laying in his bed, and it is soon clear that he is dead as cockroaches burst forth from his skin and crawl en masse from his dead body, ripping apart his flesh as they do so. 
What did you think of this one? Uh, I didn't get it, man. Like, uh, I didn't understand the story here. Uh, it didn't seem like much story. It, it seemed like he's like kind of like a Scrooge-like character, and maybe it's like a commentary on like, yeah, you can be like the richest person or whatever, um, but like something as simple as like a cockroach infestation like isn't going to spare you, or you can't like get away from that. Um, so maybe something on classism or something. But yeah, otherwise, like, the, yeah, not not much of a story here. So I didn't really have much to grasp onto. Did did I miss something, or what? What did you think? Yeah, like so, no matter how much money you have, you can still fall victim to like the everyday woes of the average human being and money can't buy you an escape from everything but right you could also look at it as like he squashes people to get further in life like treats them mm-hmm. like bugs like ha I like drove somebody to suicide like they're just you know stepping stones for him he thinks nothing of it and then you know eventually if enough of those people turn against you then mm. you you meet your doom but sure I also just kind of feel like, yeah, it's about nothing. There is there is no story except <laughs> there's some bugs and then there's more bugs. Yeah. And then he gets caught. And then there's more bugs. Yeah. Uh, the, the effects, I mean, like, did you like the effects of the cockroaches coming out of him? It is, uh, I mean, it gives me, like, creepy crawly vibes for sure. Like, those are real cockroaches. Yeah. I read somewhere between 25,000 and 250,000 cockroaches or something. No one should have that many cockroaches on him. No, nobody should. That was clearly, you know, errors in reporting and people exaggerating. But Uh, I would believe 25,000. I mean, that's a lot of cockroaches on camera. Yeah. That's crazy. The music, too, was, like, successful in creating that creepy crawly vibe. Like, they play Mm -hmm. backward violin while these roaches crawl out of his dead body. It was just kind of... Oh, yeah. Ugh. Yeah, yeah, that was a shocking visual. I feel like it's simple and effective. Like, it does its job, but there's not much to it. Yeah, I, I agree on the simple part. I'm not sure about the effective part. Sure, you didn't um, find it creepy? Uh, no, I mean, I, I think you're right. The one visual of, of the cockroaches coming out of him is gross. Uh, but otherwise, yeah, I, I just feel like nothing else really happened here. Um, w- w- I, I thought, I didn't think of the comedic part was uh, the doorbell or, like, the peephole that he would like he was talking to like a doorman through and like how it would like it was kind of like a magnifying glass was that supposed to be funny um i don't think like, so isn't that just like how they typically do peephole vision oh just like huge like kind of blown up yeah in a way yeah. oh oh I, I feel like they were kind of being funny with it like how it would like zoom in on like their mouth or something uh and like exaggerate like their, their what they were saying i but, think that's just kind of like the way that's typically shot in in movies gotcha. Tip- i mean probably more comedic movies traditionally yeah but got it okay okay but yeah, yeah it could be a thing played for laughs sure sure yeah yeah that was, a, that was an interesting one kind of had a sci-fi feel to it yeah it did uh so eventually we return to our wraparound story some garbage men uh one of them played by tom savini discover the horror comic in the trash and they notice that a toy voodoo doll from the magazine has been sent away for. Uh, we then see the boy, played by a young Joe Hill, in his bedroom, poking a voodoo doll uh, as his abusive father downstairs is in agony, clutching his <laughs> neck as Joe Hill pokes the neck of the voodoo doll. I felt I like was this clever. was... Cl- it is clever, but it was kind of an anticlimactic way to like tie up this wraparound yeah. story. Like. I wanted to see some gore or an actual death or something. It was just like, yeah, oh, and then it was yeah. over. Yeah, I'm kind of surprised it wasn't something more extreme. Um, what was the movie? Was it Trick or Treat? Or what's one where like there's like a pie that someone's eating and then it's like... I, I think that's Night of the Demons. It's not an anthology, but it oh. weirdly has a weird little wraparound story. Yeah, oh, right, right. Okay, okay. Yeah, I think I was expecting like something really kind of fucked up like that, but uh, yeah, I, I think you're right. This one wasn't didn't hit as hard. Yeah, I feel like it's like a couple at the beginning of the movie that calls one of the girls a whore, and then at the end of the movie, yeah, he eats a yeah. blade or something. Yeah. Damn, good memory, right? Yeah, because I the same thing came into my mind too. Yeah, like that's a good wraparound story. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, what did you think of this movie? Yeah, I'm. I'm just surprised it's uh, you know got such a cult following. Um, I like yeah, out of the five uh, shorts, not including the wraparound, I feel like two of them were like pretty good and like had like good dialogue, likable characters, and good storytelling and suspenseful. And then the other three were just kind of like uh, 
yeah, kind of pointless and didn't really offer too much in terms of cool ideas or visuals or uh, something, um, yeah, noteworthy. So yeah, not 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 a huge fan. I, mean, I, I think the campy vibe like kind of ties them all together pretty well. And yeah, there's kind of like an offbeat, like dark comediness to it. But um, yeah, I thought most of them weren't that great. But yeah, what what about you? What did you think? I really like it. I I love the visual <laughs> elements and the comic book tie-ins, like you know, yeah. inner titles like a comic book and a yellow banner at the top of you know, meanwhile or whatever. Uh, the overlays and the page wipe, page turn wipes, and you know, in between each story, we go to the comic book again and and transition from, uh, you know, like an animated a drawing yeah. into the real photograph. I thought that vibe was really cool. And I liked, obviously, some of the stories you didn't like, I enjoyed. I I really dug the campy zombie vibe of Father's Day. The Jordy Vero one, something about it, really endeared itself to me this time. Mm. We both agree that something to tide you over is just a really cool story in general and and a fun comeuppance at the end. I start to get bored, like... As I was watching this, I was just like, oh my God, I'm loving this. Like, this might even be a five for me. And then <laughs> in, about in the halfway through the crate, I was kind of like, okay, maybe this movie isn't a five. And mm. and I kind of kept feeling that way. Even though I think the Roaches one is effective, it's just kind of like there. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so if you had to like rank these, it sounds like uh, someone to tidy over is number one. I think that might be number one, yeah. And then Father's I I, Day, number two. Jordy Verrill, number three, but those two are close. Mm. I'd even say the cockroaches at four, and then creeping up on you at four, and then the last one is the crate, which I know a lot wow. of people will disagree with. It's just so long. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, too long. Okay. Yeah, no, that, that's that's interesting, man. Uh, I agree with you on the first one, but yeah, I think my second would be the, the crate. Um, and then, uh, shit. Yeah. It really drops from there. <laughs> it's hard to know. Uh, I'd probably go, uh, the Jordy one and then, uh, yeah, shoot the father's day, father's day. And then the number, the fifth one. Here's the thing about the crate. Like we've seen two pretty short ones, right? Like both Jordy yeah. and the other one, father's day one, probably like 15 minutes mm-hmm. and they're both pretty campy. And then the crate it's not that it's ultra serious, but it lacks the camp of the other two. Yeah. And then, yeah, all of a sudden it's like a 30 minute thing. So it just seems to really break the vibe of the movie or no wait, Something to tide you over was before the crate. Yeah. So and I that apologize. was like kind of a longer and better produced. That was longer and, and lacked camp too, but it was just like well paced and fun. Yeah. I actually thought the strategy for how they put this together is like they knew the first and second one were really shitty. So they're like lowering your expectations and then like starting to get good. And then at the end, they're like, ah, shit, here's a bad one again. I feel like those had more like silly payoff and comedic tones and like get you into like munching on your popcorn and enjoying the movie. And then you're kind of locked in with the Tide one. But then I feel like there should have been something comedic between the Tide. Yeah. And, um, the crate yeah. yep or i just feel like the crate shouldn't have been <laughs> i mean it's just <laughs> it's long just, for a, for an anthology movie yeah 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 it is it's long it's more dialogue heavy but it's got a few kills which which i enjoyed the kills were good um, especially the grad yeah. student he gets like his neck bit and his face clawed right right yeah i liked that uh yeah i i i, I thought those two like took themselves a lot more seriously and then, yeah, those first two campy ones. Would you say the last one is very campy as well? I don't think the last one is a little bit campy, but not quite, not as campy as the first two. Yeah, yeah, okay. I'd love to cover Creep Show 2 and assemble our perfect Creep Show movie with the s- combining the stories of the two because Creep Show 2 is very similar in that it has some that really work and others that are like, oh man, this is yeah a drag or not entertaining at all. Sure. Yeah. You've seen two and three? I haven't seen three. Okay. But I saw two. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. I was up for an anthology watch. Uh, it's it's kind of fun because I, I think as we said, like you're not going to get all, all good ones, but hopefully you get a few. 
Yeah, it's inevitable that it's going to be a bit uneven and weirdly paced. Yeah. So maybe next sequel, September, I'll subject you to Creepshow too. All right, that sounds good. <laughs> that sounds good. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I, I throughout, um, I yeah, I, I, I did feel like they really relied on like that lighting trick, um, and then uh, yeah, I'm surprised you thought the zombies in the first two, or that yeah, in, in uh, even the someone to tide you over as well as father's day you thought they were effective uh i thought they were kind of clumsily done i don't think so i mean so many zombie movies it's like you can tell it's a person with some makeup and these were like decomposed years old yeah. bodies with like layers and textures and yeah i thought they looked pretty good oh i thought they just had like a bunch of dirt on them or like those other ones had like a bunch of algae on them and then they got called zombies i don't think it was just like you know like dawn of the dead had people like painted gray <laughs> like oh yeah right <laughs> when you say oh they just have dirt on them it makes to me i would if i had never seen this movie i would think those zombies but a bunch of dirt instead of like gray paint but yeah. i feel like these have like prosthetics and depth mm. and texture it just to me they, they yeah. seem more real yeah okay i'll have to i'll have to go back and look at them again yeah go back give them another look i will <laughs> another once over um also, I mean, I'm not going to factor this into my review or the rating, but I think the legacy here on anthologies in general is pretty like far-reaching, specifically the campy tone and the playful visuals. Like mm. Mortuary Collection felt very much like it was wow. a, an homage to Creepshow. Yeah, interesting. Um, I guess this is like the oldest anthology that we're reviewing, right? Um were there uh, horror film anthologies before this? Yeah. Um, Mario Bava did one called Black Sabbath that you and I watched. Oh, that you and I saw. Yeah, together. right, right. Yeah. That's okay. from like 19... I don't know. It's just from the 60s. I want to say like 63. Yeah, that wasn't Italian. It was, uh, it was Hollywood. Uh, I think he did that through... Boy, that's a good question. I don't know if that was produced through the U.S. or through... Italy. I want to say it was produced through the U.S. Okay. Um, yeah. And there was like the Tales of the Crypt movie in 1972, I want to say. Um, mm. There's... Mm. Okay. Yeah. But so, but you think this one's had like a long-lasting impact on future horror anthologies? I think this one is the... I think this one has become kind of the... When you think horror anthology, you think Creepshow. Huh. I mean, more modern viewers might think VHS, but I think this is the yeah. one kind of like <laughs> set the template that a lot of other movies copied. And yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I guess when, when I think of horror like anthologies, I think the big ones are like VHS, Trick or Treat, obviously. Um, there's another Halloween one, right? Um, Tales of Halloween. T- Tales of Halloween. Uh, oh shit! Uh, the Southbound yeah. Tales was that one? Southbound, and, yeah. Yeah, none of those really remind me of this one. Do you feel like those movies are influenced by this at all? I think so. I mean, Trick or Treat and Tales of Halloween both have a campy vibe to them. Yeah, but they're actually okay. Like <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, maybe I'm just not so much into the campy thing, uh, and, and that's like kind of where I'm missing the beat on this one. I think this could be polarizing, because I think some people just are going to be like, what the fuck is this? And others are going to really love it. Yeah. Right. Well, zero Listen. to five uh, Father's Day cakes. What do you give this? <laughs> Whatever that is. <laughs> yeah, uh, I came in at two and a half because I, yeah, I liked two of them, and then I'll give a half point uh, for the effort on the other two. Oh, jeez, you're so kind. <laughs> I know, right? Uh, so yeah, uh, uh, yeah. I mean, it was, was kind of cool to have the whole uh, vibe throughout. Um, I thought there was like a lot of similarities in some of the effects that were used throughout uh, the sequences. But yeah, two of them really, I thought, felt like fully fleshed out ideas, where the other ones felt kind of half baked. Uh, what about you? It sounds like you're right around there as well. I had a soft four point five. Mm. I feel like. <sighs> I, this is one where I'm really in between. I want to say a 4.25 is the right spot because I do really like this. I have a lot of affection for this movie, so I want it to be a little higher than a 4. Mm-hmm. But the second half of the movie like, just deflates my vibes for it so much that I like want to take it back down to a 4. Damn. So 
it's kind of so tough. Up until, and your up until the crate making me want to feel like four. <laughs> up until the crate, I was like five. I love You're all like this. Five. Damn, dude. Yeah, that's crazy. How? Yeah, I, I'm just amazed. Like you like Father uh, Father's Day and, and the Jordy one. That's that's wild. They're so fun. Uh, but there's no character development. You're like, you're like a sucker for character development. In a, in an anthology, all bets are off. You just don't have time for character development. Okay. <laughs> what was that argument on the Poughkeepsie tapes? <laughs> it's not an anthology. <laughs> yeah. Feature I feel like length. the bar should be even lower, though. Feature length like film. A, I mean, I think all yeah. you're looking for is like sh- schlocky entertainment in an anthology. And Jordy, sure. I mean, is like a character study. Yeah, yeah. I feel, yeah, it's you're diving into a character, but he's not like really evolving, is he? Like in, in terms of his thinking? No, but I don't think you can expect a character to really evolve in a anthology, anthology. movie. I know I'm always the one preaching that, but yeah, in 15 he also, minutes. Yeah, he also he doesn't have agency though either, does he? Except for like taking his life. Yeah, in the end, and he touches yeah. the thing. He pours water on the thing. He makes bad decisions, and then yeah. This is, that, yeah, so it shocks me because I feel, I feel like both of those shorts are very like unlikable characters um, without like a lot of agency, where things are just happening to them uh, without like too much thought behind it. I think Jordy is a very likable character, and he does have agency. He touches the thing, he pours water on the thing. Yeah, he like dumps the goo out of the thing onto the ground. He takes a bath, <laughs> even though his dad tells him he probably shouldn't. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I he guess. shoots himself in the head. <laughs> he makes a lot of decisions. <laughs> all right. They're all yeah, bad yeah. ones, but <laughs> just bad decision after bad decision. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I guess a character like him, uh, it feels like you're boiling down like a um, a stereotype of like. I mean, they're playing on like someone like from a rural area, right? Yeah, um, for sure. He's like a country like, bumpkin, but I feel like yeah. he's a lovingly crafted bump- country bumpkin. Oh, okay. He's like endearing to you. And so many of the villains, even in this movie, are wealthy. Like, I, I don't yeah. think King has a. I think he kind of tends to champion the blue collar, everyday person in his stories. So, sure. I don't think we're really making funny, laughing at Jordy as much as we're laughing with Jordy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, uh that's really interesting the the class thing you bring up there because uh yeah that uh throughout they're all like they're all like bad like upper class rich people yeah uh right. and uh every, yeah, you, almost every well not really but father's day like mean upper class people right the tide something less yeah something to yeah. tide you over yeah upper class guy yeah and the roach yeah um yeah, yeah, I guess the other one's more academia, so maybe not so much wealth. But yeah, I don't uh, think it applies to the crate or sure. even Jordy, really. Jordy's kind of the opposite. <laughs> He's a hero yeah. who's downtrodden and doesn't have much money. Got it, yeah, yep. All right, yeah, interesting. Yeah, I wonder where King was going with that. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I'm going to give it, I'm going to stick to my 4.5, though. All right. That'll that be good. perhaps one of the biggest gaps, ratings gaps we've had in a long time. We aren't. I know. Usually a big gap is a 1.5 for us, but a 2 is rare. Yeah, damn. Look at that. Yeah, uh, did your score align with the, your old score? My old score from the last, my last notes was a 4. Okay. And this time so it's a 4.5. So, yeah, like I'm saying, it's really a 4.25, but I'm going to round up you, this time. You don't happen to know what my old score was, do you? I don't know. Ah, shit. All right. Yeah, yeah, damn. I don't remember All you right. being it so down on it last time, though. Yeah, me neither. Yeah, it's like I was in the middle of the road on it. Uh, this time I was a little offended. Maybe whoever's been peeing in my cereal snuck, took a plane <laughs> <know>. to Chicago. <laughs> I was tasting a little bit, uh, a little more bitter this morning. Yeah. Uh, okay, well, let's see. I guess that's all, right? You got anything else to say? Uh, no, that's all I got. All right. Well, that has been our discussion on Creep Show. Hope you enjoyed it. If so, you can give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you want to connect with us, go to horrormovieclub.com. Click on the social links drop down to find Facebook and Twitter. Uh, You'll find there what movie we're going to be covering next week. Click on the Discord link to socialize with other listeners uh, in our little Discord server. Uh, You can Google Horror Movie Club Coaster Set for some 
Swag, a coaster set with our logo on it, as well as some horror characters done by Amy Mae Popart, who did our logo. Uh, I think that's about it. And I'm realizing my computer's about to die. So until next time, if your dad is a jerk and he's demanding a cake for Father's Day, which is all but unheard of for all we know, either bake him a cake full of cockroaches or send away for a voodoo doll with that money you earned by selling that meteorite up at the college. (laughs) Nice.